is another beautiful Saturday morning here in Memphis, Tennessee. I am so glad that you are tuned in. I'm Sanaa and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. Over the past few weeks, we've seen a growing number of women who have come forward accusing New York Governor Andrew Cuomo of sexual harassment, unwanted touching, and inappropriate behavior. Uh, how these allegations are being handled, and then how the women themselves are being represented are part of our society's approach, beliefs, and attitudes towards sexual violence and gender. And all of these issues we've seen renewed and growing attention since the publicity around the Me Too movement. Of course, we know that sexual harassment and other forms of sexual assault are not limited to the workplace. So to talk more about these topics, joining me today is Nicole Badera. Nicole is a doctoral candidate at the University of Michigan in the sociology department. Her research focuses on college sexual violence with a specific focus on how university organizations shape the experience of sexual violence, victimization, and perpetration, as well as the role of masculinity and sexual identity in sexual assault. Nicole's research has influenced consent programming across the country, including for Planned Parenthood. Nicole has written for many popular outlets, including the New York Times, Time Magazine, and Slate. Welcome, Nicole. How are you? I'm great. I'm so glad to be here, you know, over <laughs> Zoom, but it's so nice to see you. Yes, it is so great to see you as well. So y'all, Nicole and I had uh, a few years together at the University of Maryland during graduate school. And even then I was so impressed with her work, um, such important work around sexual violence. And then of course, with this focus on the university as well. Um, and so it's been so great just to see your work really take off and for you to be, I feel like the expert about sexual violence with in university settings. Um, and so it's been so good to see, um, well, what I think of as how well-received your work has been, but also I know <laughs> probably not always feeling well-received <laughs> though. Oh, it's such a mix. I think in general, it's well-received, but the critics are quite loud. I think anybody doing this work knows that, right? Um, there are people who are really invested in sexual violence continuing. Um, there are people who know that the way that they treat women specifically, um, but we know anybody can be um, a victim of sexual violence, but we know that women specifically when they're victims, people are really invested in that continuing. A lot more people than we wanna recognize have sexual violence perpetration in their past. And um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of the people who are most critical, there's a reason. <laughs> they have a vested interest in this stuff, but in general, I agree. It has been really well received and it is, it has been really wild to become the person who um, reporters and people like that call to get a little bit of perspective on whatever is happening. It's cool. I like it. <laughs> yeah. And I always think about you because I also think it does take um, 
a bit of courage to do this work and continue to do the work, which as you mentioned, people are very invested in sexual violence continuing or for victims to be silenced or discredited. And so I know that, you know, you also have to deal with, you know, all of that criticism and yeah. even, you know, attacks in many different forms for this type of work. So I always am just, you know, so excited and sending you all the like positive vibes to continue yes. doing the work. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And it helps so much because um, I actually keep a folder of just nice things that people have said about the work or how important it has been. Um, because I think, I mean, one of the things that makes it difficult to do this work in academia is there's so much rejection, there's so much criticism. And when that is layered on top of the harassment that you get for doing this type of work. Um, and, and I want to say it's from the general public, but often actually my worst harassers are other academics mm. um, who have been accused of sexual harassment, who have been accused of sexual assault and who feel like my work threatens their position. Mm. Um, so, you know, even though they're, it, it's like coming from within the house, but <laughs> that level on top of just the norms of academia, it can be really difficult. And so I do, I keep a, um, a list of just things that people have said about how impactful talking about the survivor experience has been, because I think, I mean, the center of my work is really that sexual violence is the reason it's so traumatic is because of our society. It's because of the way that we respond to it. The biggest thing that I've learned in my time doing this work, whether it's been as an academic or as a victim advocate, which is what I did before graduate school, the biggest thing I've learned is that the trauma doesn't end with the violence, but actually the trauma continues based off of the way that we as a society respond to the violence. And so a big way that that happens, especially on college campuses or in workplaces, is being told that things aren't that bad or being told that you don't understand what happened to you or you're overreacting. That gaslighting that takes place affects your sense of self. It affects all of your relationships. Um, watching the people in your life choose, you know, most people know the person who sexually assaulted them or sexually harassed them. Watching the people in your life choose your harasser or your assaulter, your perpetrator mm -hmm. over you can make you feel deeply undervalued because you're being undervalued, right? And so it's actually the way that our organizations and our friends and our family and the people in our lives respond to violence. So that's a big part of why it's so painful. And so one thing that I just take a lot of pride on in my work is making sure that when survivors read whatever it is that I've put out, they say, okay, I have my grip on reality back. Yeah. This actually was painful. And I'm allowed to say that it's painful and people who are responding correctly to this will recognize that pain instead of trying to diminish it. And so, you know, I always appreciate hearing that that is the way that people are responding. And I, I do, I keep a folder of like, you know, every time I publish something based off of research, I make sure to send it to the participants in that study, you know, things like that and seeing their feedback. Um, I know I'm getting the story right. <laughs> so um, I do this work really for survivors and I appreciate hearing that it's going well. Yes, yes. You know, well, I love that you keep a folder of kind of like the good feedback, because we definitely yeah. need to be reminded of that. Um, especially when we are, you know, working with topics that can be very sensitive, but also emotionally, you know, draining and kind of like a little acknowledgement, right, um, in some of the more traditional forms, right. So it's, I'm happy to hear that you kind of keep 
you know, some, some good things, right? All the good responses. And, you know, something you said kind of so far as we've been talking is that, you know, there is this commitment to upholding sexual violence or mm-hmm. even minimizing it as well. Um, could you talk more about why? Why is that the case? Well, I mean, I think one component is sexual violence. We have this idea socially that the people who do it are deranged or there's something wrong with them um, psychologically, that they are bad, evil people. In reality, I think a more sociological approach to sexual violence is to recognize that it gives advantages to its perpetrators. And so people who perpetrate sexual violence, it makes them feel powerful and it helps them get power. When we think about places where sexual violence is widespread, we're really talking about... um, gender segregated spaces that are male only and are hyper-competitive. And one of the reasons that sexual violence takes place in these spaces is because it gives these men something to um, brag about with each other. It gives them social currency over each other. They don't call it sexual violence. Absolutely not. Um, Although they will brag about you know, what they're saying is a sexual conquest in a really domineering way, you know, they're still talking about having power and control over, you know, women who they're treating as sexual objects, right? And so you get something from looking powerful. And, you know, one of the ways that that can look like is looking like there's so many women who want to be with you, which is the way that a lot of them will make it sound like is I was able to get this unattainable woman. Mm -hmm. Um, I do a lot of work with queer survivors. And that is one of the reasons that lesbian women in particular are targeted. Their perpetrators often brag about being the only man who could ever be with them. And so the whole point is they don't want anyone else. They didn't want them either. But the idea is, you know, this makes me look more masculine. This makes me look more powerful. The other reason, so that's, you know, why perpetrators are invested in sexual violence, but the other reason that a lot of men as a group and and to some degree women are invested in maintaining this gendered order is because all men are actually advantaged by sexual violence. And so, you know, the example that I like to use is thinking about the most mundane interactions that you have at work where when women can't tell which men are safe or how things could escalate or they're afraid of sexual harassment or they've learned over time that the thing that you should do is just you know being quiet and polite and agreeable and then nothing will escalate or you will you know if it does you'll get blamed if you don't follow these gendered rules that really advantages men in places like the workplace because you know i can think about when a man comes to you with an unreasonable request where you need to get work done last minute, you need to cover for them or whatever it might be, those feelings of what if this escalates are just sort of entrenched. It's subconscious. We don't even think about it. We don't think, oh, I'm afraid that this person's going to physically harm me. But that's just the way that we treat, to some degree, all men. Because all men, um, I think when this type of violence happens, it's usually by someone you know, someone you like, sometimes someone you love. And so it's such a deep betrayal that it leads a lot of women to feel like I actually don't have a good gauge on what's safe and what isn't. So I'm going to be cautious and protect myself all the time. And those things we do to be cautious, give men more space in society, lead us to do favors for them that we wouldn't do otherwise. I mean, it's the reason why when a man comes up to a woman at a bar and she's not interested in him, she'll still like make nice conversation and she might, you know, maybe lie about having a boyfriend, but it's that same kind of dynamic of like, uh, you're an unknown. And so I have to be friendly and polite and, you know, make you feel good, make you entertain the idea that I do want you, even if I can't, because I have a fake boyfriend or whatever it might be. But there are all of these little things um, that all men benefit from. 
when it comes to, you know, the existence of sexual violence, it benefits all men. And so even men who don't commit acts of sexual violence, a lot of them are invested in, you know, keeping this system going, not rocking the boat too much. Um, a lot of men, I mean, when you think about like the not all men hashtag um, that went viral years ago and like still hasn't gone away. <laughs> One of the reasons is because um, another thing is that when there's sexual violence happening in society for other men who don't commit it, like the bar is really low for all other kinds of behavior. So they can say, well, I'm not committing acts of sexual violence, not all men, as if that's enough to be a good partner, as if that's enough. Um, it keeps us from having other conversations about things like, are you doing an equal amount of housework? Are you doing an equal amount of childcare? When the bar is just, I'm not violent, you know, like there are all of these ways that it keeps gender inequality stable um, and gender inequality is full of advantages for men. Mm -hmm. Yes. Ooh, there is so much there. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> you just said. But I think even listening to you talk is really kind of um, challenging some of these taken for granted assumptions that we have about interactions, right? So um, I'm willing to bet that for women who are listening, you know, you're probably nodding your head and like, yes, that is why I might just acquiesce to, you know, an extra work demand or, you know, laugh at the not funny joke by the stranger, you know, this male stranger at the bar or, you know, when walking down the street or whatever as a, you know, protective measure against a potential possible harm, right? An actual mm -hmm. bodily harm, right? Um, and how that does shape all the interactions that we're having um, with men in ways that men will never fully understand, right? Because that's right. also just how they're experiencing the world. <laughs> right. Well, and it's funny too, because on that note, I think that a lot of men, they don't understand the severity of how women do it, but men do it with other men too. Like that's one of the tricks of the patriarchy. I had a conversation with my partner once where one of his friends had made just like a really inappropriate misogynist comment in front of me. And I was like, why didn't she say anything? And he ended up telling me stories of the ways that he had, you know, been afraid of violence from other men because men are as violent to each other as they are to women, right? Like that's that's the thing that we don't even like to talk about. Um, but women don't get power from that kind of violence, whereas all men, you know, they're, it's sort of like a mutual, yes, we're kind of afraid of each other, but at the same time, you give me power by being that way. So like, I'm not really gonna question it kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, whenever men say like, I just can't understand what it's like to be a woman. I'm like, I mean, but you're kind of afraid of men too, right? You probably have stories where some domineering, intimidating man came up to you and was posturing and you felt like you had to back down because you were afraid it would turn physical. That type of violent masculinity, like almost all of us have an experience with it. And if you're listening to this and you're saying, I don't have an experience with it, then maybe you were on the other end. Maybe you were the person <laughs> who was scaring other people. And is that who you want to be? I mean, I know for the answer for some men is like, yeah, absolutely. That's masculine. That's tough. That's who I want to be. Um, I hope that's not the case. I hope that's starting to change, <laughs> but you know, I, I think people can really relate to it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think something else you said that stuck out to me, and I just want to reemphasize is this idea that you know, the majority of people who experience some sort of sexual violence do know their perpetrator. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's still very much culturally resonant that it's like this stranger in the dark alley, you know, that type of thing. But it's not, it is, you know, a friend or family member or coworker or someone that not only you know, but probably people in your social circle know and are familiar with as well. 
Yeah. And that is exactly the messiness for, you know, we talk about movements like Me Too and everybody was so shocked. You know, I can't believe I knew so many survivors. I can't believe that nobody was talking about it. Why didn't they come to me? And if we're being honest, the answer is because you're probably friends with their perpetrator or the perpetrator was in the family and they had to do all this reputation protection. Um, This is really interesting in how it affects things like sexual identity. So I'm working on this paper right now about how queer sexual identities are shaped by the experience of sexual violence. So there's this stereotype that women who are sexually assaulted become lesbians, become bisexual because they're just over men and they hate men. Sexual assault turned them into a man hater. That is not what we found. Mm -hmm. Far from it. But we found that that stereotype can lead women who've experienced sexual violence who are queer to feel like they have to be really defensive of their identities. And so in some cases, if they want to keep the identity that they started with or that, you know, I study adolescents, I study college students. So maybe they weren't even out yet, but they knew they were queer, but nobody else knew. Mm. Uh, Some of them said things like, I don't feel like I can say I'm a sexual assault survivor because that's going to question that. But the other place this came up about how they changed their public identities was when the perpetrator was someone in their circle and it was someone who they knew and their friends knew, their perpetrator would often go around and tell it as a story of consensual sex and to protect their spot in these small queer inclusive friend groups, they would tell that story too. So there were participants who originally had identified as lesbian, but then people would be like, but didn't you sleep with blah, blah, blah. And they'd like point at their perpetrator and they'd be like, oh yeah, I'm bisexual, I guess. And so they would just lose control of that identity in part because of those connections. So this is just one of the ways that everyone's um, experience of sexual violence is it's so social. It's so connected to, I mean, literally changing the word you use to describe your sexual identity as a way of protecting yourself from further trauma. If everybody takes the side of your perpetrator, it's so, so difficult. And something that I say to my students all the time, I, they actually ask them once, um, they didn't like the name of the class I was teaching. It was called like sexual assault on campus or something. And they were like, yeah, it's really weird to tell people like, yeah, I'm going to sexual assault on campus. Like, can you change the title of your class? And so I asked them what they thought the title should be. And one of the students said, okay, how about the sentence you say the most in class, which apparently is, we're all against rape until the rapist is someone we know. We all know and love a rapist. And we, you know, prioritize those rapists more than we do the survivors. Those are the relationships that we want to carry. So the sentence that they thought should be the class title was, we all know and love a rapist. And I was like, you want to say that all the time? And they're like, yeah, we kind of do. Because I think for so many survivors, that's the experience, right? Is when you say that you've been sexually assaulted, people are, you know, stop everything. Like, oh my God, that is so awful. What can I do? What do you need? And then they ask like, well, who was it? Like, was it a stranger? And you say like, no, it's actually like your best friend. Then they're like, no, I don't see that. I don't think that happened. And immediately a switch flips. And you can see how that happened in the Me Too movement as well, that there were all of these women who, when they came forward and said that they'd been sexually assaulted, they got a lot of support. You can think of celebrities who got a lot of support. And then when you found out that the perpetrator was someone beloved, Mm. all of a sudden people said, oh, she's just trying to get his money. She's just trying to hurt his reputation, you know, whatever it might be. And um, we saw this backlash in the men's rights movement. We saw this backlash of protections for perpetrators. College campuses are such a good example of where that's happened, where now the Title IX processes that were intended to help survivors stay in school are all about protecting perpetrators and are now being weaponized by perpetrators as an extension of their abuse. 
against victims, where they're harassing their victims through the schools and through the Title IX processes. So yeah, I mean, th there are so many components <laughs> to why it's so messy that the perpetrators are people who victims know. But that I think is the most important one that we as a society should be sitting with right now is when you find out that someone you know has been sexually assaulted in your head you should also think the perpetrators probably in my friend group is probably in my family i probably know them mm -hmm. because the victim does and so what am i going to do when i find out who it is how am i what am i going to do um, to prepare myself for the possibility that this disclosure means that there's going to be a strain on another of my relationships and which one do i want to prioritize mm. when we're not ready for that conversation we don't handle it well Right. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I want to come back to this very important question of the what do I do when I find yeah. out who the perpetrator is. Um, but let's take a quick break. Um, and then when we come back, I'd actually like to get more into this college campus aspect and what you kind of briefly highlighted around Title IX. Um, you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Nicole Badera, a doctoral candidate at the University of Michigan. And we've been talking about this really big conversation around sexual violence. And I wanted to get more into your research, particularly on college campuses and how we see universities um, addressing or even not addressing um, instances of sexual violence on campus, both from perpetrator standpoint, but also victim standpoint as well. Yeah, there's so much to talk about. And this is a really important moment to talk about it because um, I think it was only last week, my sense of time is warped in the pandemic, but only last week, the Biden administration reaffirmed that they want to change the way that Title IX is being handled on campuses, which, you know, I know that the reaction to that is like, wow, we've really been having this fight for the past 10 years without a break, but there's a reason it's because it's so important and it's because you know, things are, are in a really bad place right now. So this is a really important moment to talk about Title IX. So to give everybody who isn't familiar with what's been happening on college campuses a little bit of a history. So Title IX is a regulation that actually has nothing to do explicitly about sexual assault. So it just says that everyone should have an equal access to education based off of gender. So you, gender discrimination, it actually says sex, but sex discrimination should not get in the way of your ability to get your middle school diploma, your high school diploma, or your college diploma. Um, and so you should, it shouldn't make it harder for you to sit in your classes, to concentrate, all of these things are a problem. The way it got tied to sexual violence is sexual violence is so widespread and it affects women so disproportionately that it is, and this is true, actually a history of sexual violence is the best predictor of a college woman's GPA. Mm. It is the very best predictor we know of, of a college woman's GPA. So when we're talking about things that are standing in the way of equal education, sexual violence is at the core, sexual harassment is at the core. And so starting in the 1980s, this conversation goes back a lot farther than people think, starting in the 1980s, um, women were starting to argue that experiencing sexual harassment or sexual assault on campus was getting in the way of their ability to complete their college degrees. Starting in around 2001, the federal government agreed and recognized it and said, hey, that's part of Title IX. Schools need to do something about sexual assault, but schools didn't do anything. And the Obama administration, all that they did that was so controversial in 2013 um, was they just told people like, hey, this has been on the books for over a decade and no one has done anything. We're going to enforce this law. 
-hmm. We're going to enforce this interpretation of this law. And here's a whole list of things that schools need to do. And people get overwhelmed by the list, but it was pretty simple. It was actually really simple. It was just, you need to have um, some kind of prevention programming around sexual violence to make it less likely to happen in the first place. And then you need to have um, some kind of response. So if sexual violence takes place, there are two things that schools need to do. The first is to have some kind of a disciplinary procedure, which is the more controversial part, where if you have a serial perpetrator on campus, the school has an obligation to remove that person because they are in violation of anti-discrimination policy. And then the other thing um, that a lot of survivors would say is the more important part is to make sure there are supportive resources. So um, there was a report that came out this week from an organization called Know Your Nine, which is a student-led organization about campus sexual assault. And they surveyed over a hundred survivors about their experiences of the aftermath of sexual violence on their campus. So their processes of reporting and trying to get help. And what they found is 40% of them had an educational interruption Mm -hmm. because they could not manage the sexual violence. And so that's what the resources are about. It's about making sure you can get those extensions on homework assignments, that if you're living in the same dorm that you were sexually assaulted in, you should be able to move because it's a triggering and traumatic space or because your perpetrator is still living in the same dorm too. Um, Also making sure that survivors, you know, one thing that was happening and still continues to happen, it might be happening even more now. There's some evidence, the little bit that we know is sort of pointing in this direction. Survivors, when they are experiencing violence and they say, I can't be afraid of running to my perpetrator on this very small campus all the time. um, A lot of schools are responding with, well, why don't you take a leave of absence until he graduates? Wow. So this is really deeply unfair Mm -hmm. because the victim did not choose to be assaulted. The victim did not choose to be in the situation. The perpetrator is the one who made all the choices, but we're holding the victim responsible for those choices and saying, why don't you go take a break? Um, Taking that break is a really big deal. It gets in the way of things like if you take a long enough break from school, you have to start paying back your student loans. And then in some cases, if you haven't paid off certain types of student loans, you can't return to school until they're paid off. And so a lot of survivors have a hard time coming back because of the student debt crisis. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about things like that, you can see very quickly how a bad response to sexual violence can lead so many women to not complete their degrees. So that's, that's sort of like why we care about Title IX. What's really brutal right now is that under the Trump administration, um, Title IX has been weaponized against survivors. And so this includes things like now if a survivor wants to report a sexual assault, um, they have to come sort of face-to-face with their perpetrators. Although, you know, the Trump administration said you can do it online, but we know that like I feel pretty face-to-face with you right now, even though we're on Zoom, right? (laughs) And so um, they have to be directly examined by someone who is, you know, representing their perpetrator. And that can be so scary and so upsetting and traumatic, not just upsetting. Upsetting is really like not doing it service. Um, It is actually traumatic and it's just as traumatic as the sexual assault itself. And so that's one way that perpetrators can use the system to continue to abuse their victims. Another thing that started to happen following the Trump administration's changes, this was happening a little bit before, but now it's happening to about one in 10 survivors who report, according to this Know Your Nine report that came out this week. Um, Now what's happening is perpetrators are using the Title IX system to file what we call retaliatory complaints. So retaliatory complaint, the entire purpose is a perpetrator makes a false report of sexual assault against their victim And they say, I'll drop my report if you drop yours. Mm. I'll drop my complaint if you drop yours. 
or they don't. They don't. This is really common in intimate partner violence cases. Um, these complaints also, they're very effective at confusing Title IX administrators. Um, so for example, one case of this that I know really well, there was a perpetrator who he had been physically abusing his partner, who they both went to the same school. They were both undergraduate students. Um, and he filed a complaint against her alleging that she had hit him back, which was a form of self-defense. But both the perpetrator and the authentic victim, um, they ended up getting the exact same punishment from the school. And so what does this say? Imagine the psychological impact on this victim who's being told it was your fault, actually. You didn't handle this well. You are just as at blame as he is. That can make healing so impossible when that's where you're coming from. We know that self-blame is one of the best predictors of not healing. So all of the stuff that the Trump administration has done to try to give perpetrators of sexual assault, they now have more rights than you would if you were accused of physical assault mm. on a college campus. Um, and those rights, I mean, it's weird to call them rights because it's all about harming another person. It's all about the ability to hurt their victim even further. And so that's why it's so crucial that we change things. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, I know when you were kind of just giving us this overview of what Title mm -hmm. IX is supposed to do, one of the pieces was also this part about prevention. Yeah. So based on your research, how good are these prevention programs that universities <laughs> and colleges have implemented? Well, so there are two answers. One is we don't know because a lot of the prevention programs that universities have implemented have never been tested. We don't know if they actually are reducing the sexual assault rate at all. The other answer is most of the ones that have been tested, we know are terrible. We know are not actually making an impact. The sexual assault rate has not gone down on college campuses. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they're not really getting the job done. And that's not surprising because what we do know about sexual assault prevention is that these ideas are so deeply ingrained in us. We're growing up, there's a reason that people use the phrase rape culture, that we're growing up in a time where this is starting to change. But when I was growing up, and I'm, I'm still in my 20s, like I'm not that old, but when I was growing up, a lot of the most like romantic scenes in movies were arguably sexual assaults or stalking. They were things that would, if they happened in real life, would not be cute, would not be romantic, would be deeply unsettling. That's starting to change now. Now we're seeing a lot more like verbal consent conversations and TV shows and things like that. But we have a lot of unlearning to do. And so one of the things we know about sexual assault prevention programs is they don't really work unless they last, um, I think at least 12 weeks is the number that's mm -hmm. popping in my head, but you know, a number of months of these trainings, that's really different from what schools have been doing. Schools, the most common thing that they do is one training during first year student orientation that's probably optional and a lot of students probably don't go. And if you remember your first week on a college campus, I mean, you don't even know where the library is, you know? I remember it took me a couple of months to figure out the way to get to the right grocery store and I was getting so turned around. It was my first time, not in my hometown and it was so overwhelming. And so the idea that you're going to completely rethink the definition of sexual violence and what's okay and what's not, that's not the best place to do it. So that's a big issue. In my own research, I've also found that um, there's a lot of resistance to these trainings 
from students who are already sexually active and have already committed sexual assaults, which college sexual violence, it doesn't start there. A lot of the perpetrators who perpetrate in college were already perpetrating sexual violence in high school. And so that's another piece. I'm not going to let colleges off the hook. They still need to be doing a lot to, you know, prevent things. We know that people who've committed sexual assaults can change. We have empirical evidence of that. So that's the work of colleges. But we also, there's another conversation to be had about things like comprehensive sex education and making sure that we're getting consent education um, to our students before they have to use it. Instead of afterwards, imagine you're sitting in one of these consent trainings and what they're saying is the definition of consent means that you're finding out, oh, wow, like that thing that I I thought was kind of bad, you know, that wasn't my best sexual experience. Maybe that was sexual assault. That's really overwhelming. And especially if it's happening in first year student orientation, where you don't know where the counseling center is, where you don't know, you don't have any friends, you don't know anybody yet. um, That's a really overwhelming time to try to make those connections. And so for people who have perpetrated sexual assault, this is maybe the least effective way to do it. Instead, what they're probably going to do is rationalize their behavior and say, that's not sexual assault. And that's what I find in my research is that um, we have a lot of cultural narratives that make it easy for people to explain away sexual violence. So one project I did, I interviewed a bunch of college men about how they sought consent, but I didn't use the word consent. Mm -hmm. So instead of um, saying, okay, do you go, how do you get consent? Which I did at the end. When you ask them explicitly at the end, do you get consent and how do you do it? Everyone is a rock star. Everyone has the perfect answer. (laughs) But when you don't use the word consent and you use words instead, like how could you tell your partner wanted to continue having sex with you? How could you tell that sex was going to happen? Mm -hmm. Things like that. Um, That is when you find out that they're using things. The most common thing that they said was kissing, which, you know, fair enough. But then the second most common sign was um, moaning and eye contact were two and three. So like, oh, she was making eye contact with me. Like what, what? That's not (laughs) enough. And so the argument that I make in this paper, which actually came out last week, so it's very new. um, You can find it in violence against women if you can get past the paywall. But... um, The thing that I argue in the paper is that because the way that even people who are having only consensual sex tell stories of sexual desire and um, sexual consent, when we focus on things like eye contact that are really ambiguous, that makes it so easy for that person who's sitting in the consent training, who has committed a sexual assault to say, but I had, she gave me eye contact. Mm -hmm. She gave me eye contact. So obviously I'm not a sexual assailant. I can't deal with that disruption to my identity. So this is all a long way of saying we have a long way to go. And um, when it comes to coming to good prevention programming, we really do need long-term education. And we also probably need to explicitly sit down and say things like eye contact doesn't count. It's not enough. You need to be looking for these other signs of consent. Because one thing I really took from that project was that even men who were probably only having consensual sex still, there were other signs that it was consensual, but they couldn't put their finger on what exactly they were. Mm. And so instead they still were relying on these other things like eye contact that are actually not good indicators. I mean, if we were in person, we would be making eye contact right now. I was making eye contact with these men during our interviews and I didn't have sex with any of them, right? Like it's not sufficient. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. You know, 
in the course of doing these interviews, because I know you said at the end, you did ask them specifically mm-hmm. using the word consent, right? And they all knew the answers, right? So we know mm-hmm. something about consent in a way to say that we understand consent mm-hmm. and, you know, but in practice, that may look very different, right? Yeah. So for the men that you spoke to in the course of these interviews, for folks who realize like, well, maybe I didn't have consent. Mm-hmm. or maybe it, it wasn't how I thought about it. What was that kind of process like for the, How did they kind of make sense of that realization? You know, it's funny because another thing that we've known in the literature for a long time that can be hard to reconcile with these conversations on consent is that sexual assault is not a miscommunication. It doesn't happen on accident. And I hope for people listening to this, this kind of is a relieving thing. I remember I was on a train once and when you're on a train and you have lunch, they like make sure that you're all taking up every seat. You can't sit by yourself, right? And so I ended up sitting with three freshman boys, just coincidentally, because it was, you know, everybody's going home for winter break. And I told them about what I do. And I was asking them about their consent training. And one of them was just so terrified. He's like, I'm never having sex, not while I'm in college. Like I'm going to be accused. I'm going to get it wrong. I might accidentally rape someone. And so I wanted to say, I was like, that's not a thing. Right. Not a thing. It's you can tell when something's gone wrong. You can tell when um, you don't have consent. But what I found, because I work with rapists as well, mm-hmm. what I found for these men who didn't have consent is just, they don't label it as rape, but they label it as not good. They're like, mm-hmm. yeah, that wasn't good. I can't tell you, like, that wasn't, that wasn't great. But um, a sentence that came up a lot in the study was it's not rape, it was just non-consensual. And so the thing that I want people to know is those are the same. Mm-hmm. Those are the same. If you don't have consent, there is no difference between non-consensual sex and rape. They are both equally, I mean, they're literally the same, but on top of that, whether there was another aspect of physical violence or not, that's what a lot of people think of as rape is that there is some kind of physical assault in addition to the sexual assault. Um, That's equally as traumatic as when the sexual assault is there on its own. Something a lot of people don't think about is that sexual violence, although it is a physically violent crime, most of the trauma is psychological. Mm-hmm. Most sexual assault victims will not have physical injuries. They, there might not even be a sign that the sexual assault took place. You know, that's one of the things that can be difficult when people go to get a forensic exam or something like that is, you know, there isn't a lot of bruising. There isn't that kind of evidence left behind, but that doesn't mean the sexual assault didn't happen because the abuse is psychological. It's that loss of autonomy over an extended period of time. That is what is traumatic about sexual assault. And so that's kind of what the experience was like in talking to these men. They would kind of say like, but like, I didn't hold her down. I didn't bruise her. I didn't hit her. And it's like, but that's not the sexual assault component. That's whether or not you can committed an additional assault, mm-hmm. another form of physical battery. But that was sort of the thinking was like, literally the line was, it's not rape. It's just not consensual. That's the same thing. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. It's interesting because I think that, you know, we've known since the 80s that men who commit acts of sexual violence will rationalize away the violence by looking at things like we're talking about the study I'm thinking of. Um, they literally are talking about cases where like these are strangers kidnapping women off the street and like throwing them in the trunk of a car, like things that are unambiguously 
sexual violence. And even men who committed crimes like that would say like, but she made eye contact with me or she was talking to me while we were in the car. And so like, clearly she wanted to be there on some level. No, she didn't. <laughs> like That's not true. Um, and so separating those things that have nothing to do with consent and just saying like, that's not the signal you should be looking for. The signals that you should be looking for are things like um, whether or not the person I'm with is reciprocating. Are they an active, enthusiastic participant in what's happening? Checking in and talking about what's going on and asking people how they're doing if you're not sure is a really good thing to do. And it's not awkward. People think it's awkward and it's really not awkward. Um, but one, one of the participants in the study who did the best at getting consent across the board, whether we're using the phrase or not, one thing he would do is he would just like throughout his encounters, just sort of pull back and see if his partner would then take the lead. Mm. And he was like, if I pull back, and then it looks like she's ready to be done the second that I'm not the one driving things like that's a problem. And so instead, if I just like let her be the one in control, some of the time, like that is going to be an indicator that she wants to be here. She wants to continue doing things. And it, it literally was as simple as like, I'll be kissing her and then I'll pull back to see if she pulls forward and like, that's it. So this stuff isn't complicated. And it's stuff that when you think about it, you're probably like, oh yeah, I do recognize that that happens in my own experiences. We just don't use that language. We don't think about that kinds of thing. Instead, we have these like stories around, you know, eye contact or whatever, um, but it can be so confusing for, I, I recognize how confusing and overwhelming it is from an identity standpoint for people who committed these acts of sexual violence. But I would like to get to a place where we can recognize that it's, it's tricky and that it's a difficult thing to do with your identity. And so instead of doubling down and denying and hurting, not just your victims, but societally wide, you know, you are hurting more victims and more women in particular who are not going to be believed or not be trusted just in defense of your own ego. Like that's another, that's an additional harm. The better thing to do is to, you know, get yourself a therapist to talk this stuff out, to make sure that you're not going to do it again. Cause that's the other thing that's at risk here is if you double down and say, that's not sexual assault, are you then going to continue to do it to prove to yourself mm. that it's okay when it never was, and you're going to hurt more people. It's, you know, part of accountability is, is discomfort. And so leaning into it a little bit. And, um, I think it helps. I think it works. I think so. <laughs> um, I have definitely interviewed men. Um, either if, if they've come in as victims or perpetrators, there is overlap in those categories where sometimes um, victims who come in are also perpetrators who the thing that they wanted afterwards was connection to a therapist to work through some of this stuff. And by the nature of my research and you know the agreements with ethics committees and stuff like that, I don't stay in touch with my participants um, aside from like occasionally sending them an update on like, this is what the research is about. But I don't follow up with them individually. I don't know long-term how it's worked, but I know that the thing that a lot of them were looking for was help finding a therapist that they could afford. Yeah. That, you know, wouldn't be connected to like a lot of people don't want to go to their school counselor because it can be connected to your academic records. Um, they're anxious about these things being subpoenaed and things like that. Um, they're worried about confidentiality. So making sure that we have um, accessible healthcare is a really big deal here. You know, all of these issues we're talking about, it's connected to so many other inequities, but then also like just making sure that people have a safe, comfortable space to explore this stuff without continuing to harm the victim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So important. Um, let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM.
And here we are on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Nicole Badera, an expert on sexual violence. And so we've covered, you know, a lot of ground today. And I think, you know, you've given so much really good advice and insights, right, on both victims and perpetrators. But I want to come back to something we kind of talked about in the kind of first segment, which is the fact that, you know, we all know and love a rapist. And what do we do when we find out, you know, our beloved friend or family member is a perpetrator, is a rapist? What should, like, literally, what should we do when we get this information? Well, let's start with what not to do. Because okay. in general, when somebody comes to you and they've done something bad, we all have this socially constructed way that we like to respond, which is just, it's okay. It wasn't that bad. You're fine. We just want to make people feel better by minimizing or denying what they did. Don't do that. You're not doing them any favors. You're definitely not doing the victim who you probably know. You're not doing them any favors. And so instead, the thing that we have to do is sort of hold people accountable um, and just sort of own what it is like sexual violence. One of the first things I learned when I was trained to be a victim advocate is, you know, people want to say like, let's just lock up all the rapists. Um, but that actually on college campuses, 11% of men commit a rape before graduation. So this is a huge amount of our community that would disappear. And that solution, if sexual violence were more rare, maybe would work. But the reality is um, you would be hard pressed to cast out every person who committed an act of sexual violence. This isn't to let them off the hook. It's just to say that the hook needs to look different. Mm -hmm. The hook needs to look different. And so thinking about ways that you just don't minimize what took place, being the person that you can talk, that they can talk to, to be like, how do I, you know, sort of work through this? I have a friend who she came to me and she was like, so I know you do this work and um, I just found out that my, my brother told me a story where he had kissed a girl at a party and she hadn't wanted to, and they were both drunk and she's, you know, really uncomfortable. What do we do? And I was like, well, this is actually the perfect moment for you to be having this conversation with your little brother, because at this point, it doesn't sound like this has escalated into like serial perpetration. This sounds like maybe his first experience of committing an act of sexual violence, which unwanted kissing is, um, so how do you talk him through making sure it doesn't happen again? How do you talk him through um, why did it happen? How can we change your behavior to make sure it didn't take, didn't take place again? Was he around friends that made him feel pressured? Was he around, was he in a, a setting where because you know everybody was drinking and this is just what people are doing that he thought it was more okay? Were there signs that she was uncomfortable that he chose to ignore? Because that's what we see is that men are actually very good at perceiving women's nose. They just often choose to ignore them, mm. especially when it's around issues of sex. And so what were those signs? How do we make sure that he knows that this is not okay? Whether, I mean, people can make their own decisions about whether or not they can continue to stay friends with someone who has committed an act of sexual violence. What's interesting is I don't think that that's even the conversation we need to be having because people the more common reaction is people want to stay friends. And so they ignore the violence. And so really the thing that we need to do, we're not talking about, you know, is it ethical or not? That's up to you. And that's up to your friend group. And honestly, the other thing it's up to is if you know the survivor and the survivor says, I need you in my corner and I would prefer that you are no longer friends with my assailant, that is a reasonable request. And if your relationship with the survivor is so important to you, you know, giving them power and how you choose to respond is a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. um, letting them be able to set boundaries and set expectations 
for you is a really big deal. But if it's just a situation where you don't know the victim at all, like the situation where my friend was in, where her brother was like, I think I crossed a line. Mm-hmm. Don't minimize. Mm-hmm. Don't say this is no big deal. Say, yeah, it sounds like you crossed a line. So how do we work through that? How do we make sure that doesn't happen again? Yeah. You know, it's sometimes we like to make it sound like sexual violence is this really complicated and difficult problem. And we have no idea what to do. And that's why it's okay that we continue to mess it up. But sometimes the solutions are right in front of us. It's just not minimizing it. It's just saying, yeah, you probably don't want to be that person moving forward. Right. So how do we, how do I, as your friend, make sure you're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing that is more complicated is yeah. When you know the survivor, because survivors understandably may not want to forgive their perpetrators, may not be able to forgive their perpetrators and may never feel safe in their presence. And so in some cases where you do have to choose which person you're going to continue to have an allegiance to now, it's a question of who do you want to be? Do you want to be the person who says, well, you know, the easier thing is to hang out with my like friend, the rapist, or do you want to be the person who says, I have a friend who's going through something really hard and I want to support them no matter what, especially because they didn't choose this. Um, I think for women in particular, this is really difficult because one of the things that women experience when they hear stories of sexual violence is it makes us feel really scared. And one of the ways that we try to protect our own feelings is to say, is to blame victims. We say, there are so many things that she did. This mutual friend who committed a sexual assault would never do this to me Mm. because I would act that way. And that leads us to actually have more empathy and allegiances with the perpetrator than with the victim. Mm -hmm. And that's something that as women, we need to be thinking about the whole time too, is like, is my reaction about protecting myself Mm. as opposed to being there for my friend who's been sexually assaulted by someone I know? Am Mm -hmm. I just uncomfortable? In that case, who do you need to talk to? Who do you need to be working things through with? Sexual violence, it affects entire communities. And so there's a reason that we literally call the friends of victims secondary survivors, because the experience of feeling like your social sphere has been unsettled by sexual violence and it's no longer safe, it leads us to do all kinds of irrational things like buddying up even more with the person who perpetrated the violence. So what do you need? to feel comfortable? What do you need to make sure that you are not also perpetuating that harm? Mm. Whoo, that's a lot right there for us to think about. It's a lot. (laughs) Because I mean, the reality is all of us probably know a survivor, whether or not they've actually disclosed that information and all of us know a rapist, whether or not, you know, they've disclosed that information. So this is something, you know, all of these questions are things that we have to proactively be thinking about because it is happening around us and maybe even to us, um, even if it's not being kind of openly talked about. Um, So I think that's so important. And another thing to think about too, is how have we all created the environment um, in which the rapists who we know have felt pressured to commit acts of violence or been able to get away with it. If they were the ones who wanted to do it, how did we allow them to be in a place where they could hide in plain sight? Because one thing we know is that the social circumstances you're in are a very good predictor of whether or not you'll commit an act of sexual violence. So we know that fraternities are such a good example of this because a lot of fraternities don't have a single rapist within them, but the ones that do have a huge concentration of rapists all in the same place. We also know that when people leave, you know, if you're working in a a workplace that has a lot of toxic masculinity, maybe you'll sexually harass people while you're there. But then if you go to your next workplace that doesn't tolerate sexual harassment, you probably won't, right? Mm -hmm. And so thinking about when an act of sexual violence happens in your friend group or in your family thinking, all right, what did we all do to create 
an environment where this was likely to happen. So we know that for sexual violence in particular, um, holding sort of regressive gender values that like men should take up more space than women, that women should cater to men, those sorts of things make sexual violence more likely to occur. Um, the idea that men should be the ones holding power, that's one of the reasons that you see sexual violence in the clergy, especially clergies that don't allow women to be clergy members. Those are some of the things you have to think about, um, but also places where people just hold, you know, hostile values about sexism. So if you are in a place where people are making jokes about women, misogynist jokes, jokes about sexual violence, things like that. Um, we know that those are places where sexual assailants really flourish and where people feel pressured to engage in acts of sexual violence. If you are um, being competitive about sex and you are fraternities do this as part of hazing processes where you have to come and share your sexual conquests every week that creates a sense of pressure um, and so making sure that you're changing your own behavior to say all right how did I make it so that my friend felt comfortable this is another reason that we like start to reject and rationalize because we don't want to feel responsible for what happened mm -hmm. and the reality is we're all responsible for sexual violence that's happening in our society there's something more that each of us can do to make our own friend groups more comfortable and more safe the other thing that comes up a lot, especially in families, is um, whether or not people feel comfortable talking about sex. So yes. one of the one of the people who sexual violence survivors really don't want to know that they were assaulted is their parents. Across the board, they don't want their parents to know unless they already have had comfortable conversations about sex and sexuality with their parents. If they know they won't be judged, if they know they can talk about what's going on, they can go and get help. And so that's something that I think a lot of us could really work on is how do I have appropriate, comfortable conversations about issues of sex and sexuality so that when something like sexual violence happens, people feel like they can talk to me. So how do you make sure that the first conversation you're having with your child about sex is not your child disclosing that they're a sexual assault survivor? How do you make sure that you're telling them, you know, even if you consented to kissing or touching or whatever, or you'd had sex in the past, I'm not gonna judge you. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of things that we can all do to make that easier because that degree of secrecy when we're talking about what that has to do with perpetrators and how there are perpetrators in our friend groups and families, that secrecy around sex also makes it really easy for things like child sex abuse to take place. So I don't know, if you're gonna like, take away the main points of this conversation. It's examine your own sexist attitudes and what you tolerate, even if you are, you know, it rubs you the wrong way, but you didn't say anything. How can you find a way to say something? Um, also making sure that the conversations about sex we are having are, um, you know, open-minded, non-oppressive, that you're making sure that people can get the information they need without creating pressure to engage in sex that people don't want to have. Those are the main things. And then just don't minimize or deny the problem when it comes up. Just be honest about it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that was a great note to end on. Those are all important, you know, things for us to think about. And hopefully for everyone listening, you can at least take one of these and really start to interrogate within yourself, right? Like, how am I creating an environment that's, you know, facilitating sexual violence? Or how can I even, you know, make changes, you know, to my social circle or the way that we operate within our social sphere as well? So thank you so much, Nicole. I've enjoyed having you. I've learned so much. And I think this is just such an important conversation. Thank you for having me. This was so nice. I really enjoyed this. Yes, thank you. Thank you again to Nicole Badera. So much important information because as our conversation really highlighted, 
we all, you know, know survivors and we all know and love a rapist. So the question really is, what are we going to do in order to create environments where survivors feel that they can um, get the support they need, but also where we can create different types of environments, environments that do not facilitate or support um, sexual violence. Y'all, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. I hope you will join me again next week. <laughs>